from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. Okay, let's open our Bibles. I'm going to go to the book of Micah this morning. Um, And let me just, as we're starting this morning... um, in the book of Micah, or we're going to look at the book of, book of, book of Micah, um, there's going to be another blog post coming out with just cuts. Uh, this is so, this, this book is so vast. Uh, there's so many lessons to learn from the book of Micah, and I'm just going to try to hit on some of them that I think would be highlights for us. So not only am I going to try to exegete the text, I'm going to try to exegete our congregation by giving you some things that I think that the book of Micah teaches us as a church in particular, there's a lot of other lessons that we could learn. Uh, the other thing about the book of Micah that's hard is it's really choppy, right? So Micah discusses certain things, and then he deals with other things, and then he goes to these high places, and he goes back down, and it's this constant movement, so the sermon's going to feel that way. So I'm just going to be honest with you up front, because I'm a firm believer that you preach a book of the Bible the way the book is written. You don't just do it the way you want to do it, Right? So that's how we're going to handle it this morning. Now, we're in a series, uh, if you're new with us or just by way of re- reminder, in a series called Prophets in Exile. And we're in this series because we, you know, back in 2020, when things began to go kind of wonky in our world, <clears throat> you know, just the Lord began to stir in my heart this issue of what is it like to live in hardship in, in times that are just feels like we're on exile, we're on the outs. Um, and I just began to read through the, the minor prophets and the we started this series back before I left. It's the 12 books called the Minor Prophets. And we're just trying to learn some lessons of what they experienced and went through so that we might be able to apply those same things as well. And what we've noticed in this has been not only were these people going through really hard times, but most of it was from their own doing. Right? These are people that had forgotten their God. They were, they were living like the rest of the nations around them. And they didn't look nor did they act like the people of God. And God promised through these minor prophets that he was going to discipline them for their sin by primarily sending a foreign army into their land to destroy everything that they have and remove them from their land because they were God's people. It was a promise that God had made to them that once you get into the promised land and things get really good and you forget your God, you're going to get exiled. It was just God's promise to them and and the, the prophets have been displaying that. Now, now, Unlike all the other prophets we've studied, you know, we've studied Hosea, we've studied Joel and Amos and Jonah. Obadiah is a, a kind of an anomaly to this. But those other prophets basically prophesied and did their ministry prior to the invasion. They prophesied about what was coming, and they looked back knowing, and they all died before this thing ever happened. Micah is the first prophet we're going to study that actually prophesied about what was coming and actually lived through it. So there's a moment in the book where it seems like something goes on and Micah suddenly is now looking beyond what's happening in his own world. And you're going to see that. It's very clear in the book. So here's what I hope we're going to learn this morning. This is the big idea that I hope we'll get out of this morning. God has a plan for his people in a sin-stained world. And he delights in steadfast love and will always fulfill his promise. I just want to read that again. God has a plan for his people in a sin-stained world, and he delights in steadfast love and will always fulfill his 
promise. Now, just for a moment, think how comforting. Leave that big idea up for a moment. Think how comforting this big idea is. Right? I mean, as you look around at your world right now, it does feel like, doesn't it, that chaos just has control. And that's an odd thing. Chaos in control. You know, uh, Chaos is chaotic. And it just feels like everywhere you move, there's like this what moment. Like, that that really just happened? Is this really going on? So they're really teaching that in schools? That That's an idea that people really believe in? Um, one of the funny things in the Philippines that, that hit me was uh, one of our questions on our exam is a pastoral question, and it's about it's about divorce. And um, divorce is illegal in the Philippines, which I thought, what what a cool thing that'd be in the states, you know, make that look. Uh, they have annulment, but not you know divorce. And so when I mentioned divorce to these guys, one guy just said, "Why well, I turned them into the police?" And I was like, "What? <laughs> what? Like man, you know, a bunch of people would be arrested in the states, you know?" So. <clears throat> right? It just feels like, it just does, it feels like when you're in the world, like it's just, it's just chaotic. Like what, you know, things are just so uneasy. They're uncertain. Uh, it's like the world just feels like it's heading in a downward spiral fast. Right? And I can almost feel, uh, like American Christians in particular, losing hope. You just lose hope in the sense. That's what I saw in 2020. These people going, look man, this thing's just going down, you know, hell in a handbasket, just get our hands off of it and we're just out, you know? And, I've never seen that attitude in the Bible. Um, and secondly, I think something that the Lord's trying to say in the midst of chaos and confusion is there is something that is certain that we must get our hands wrapped around and get our hearts wrapped around. Right? So imagine how comforting it is to hear that. But also imagine for a moment that you're living in the days of these prophets. Right? You're hearing that God is not happy with your nation. Now, in our world, we kind of assume that God's not happy with our nation. But imagine actually having a, a prophetic man who has been designated by God that stands up and says, God's not happy with your nation, and the Assyrians are coming from the north, and they're going to ransack everything that you have. And you're looking around, and you're seeing a bit of the decadence they're talking about. You're seeing the immorality. You're seeing the things happening. And you know that this thing's coming soon, and you see the concern. What would you be wondering? Has God, has God left his people? Does God have a plan? What, what's going to happen in the end? What is he going to do? Right. Well, that's where this big idea is really important. God has a plan for his people in a sin-stained world, and he delights in steadfast love and will always fulfill his promise. Now, for you as people of God, and us as people of God, these are things we must cling to in this world when chaos is running crazy. I just read this morning that the, you know, the mayor of Portland is now declaring this homeless tent cities are illegal. And the rest of you also are going, well, thank God, finally. Because at some point when the city was burning on fire, we're all going, why is it letting chaos going crazy? But in the middle of all this, there's still something certain. And it's that God has a plan for his people in a sin-stained world, and he will always fulfill his promise, always. Right? So stand with me, and we're going to read the first verses of Micah and the last verses of Micah. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth. And all that is in it, and let the Lord be a witness against you, and the Lord from His holy, the Lord from His holy temple. 
For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of Israel, of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces, and all her wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee from for from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and from the fee of a prostitute she shall return. Now go to chapter seven and look at the last three verses with me. Beginning in verse 18. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever, for he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham. As you sworn to our fathers from of old. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is true, and we thank you for these moments when we study these prophets where they reveal to us the heart that you have for your people, and also, Lord, the heart that you want from your people for you. So I pray this morning that you would open our eyes to the truths that are found here, and Lord, where necessary, convict us of our sin and exhort us to change. But Lord, would you <clears throat> would you remind us that you are a God full of mercy, abounding in steadfast love. And you will not turn your face away from your people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks. You may be seated. Now let's start by just looking at the first point in your outline, which is Micah and his People. Micah ministered in the time of Isaiah the prophet. So when you read Isaiah, you know, which is the made one of the major prophets, you are also reading and, and getting a sense of the times of Micah. You can tell this because of the kings that are listed in verse one. And Micah was from a small town in the southern kingdom of Judah called Morasheth. And at this time, if you will remember the, the nation of Israel is divided into two lands. It's divided into the northern kingdom of Israel the more sinful kingdom with wicked kings, and in the south, the kingdom of Judah, which whose kings could be traced to the, king, the line of King David, who was the godly and God-fearing king of the people of Israel. And Micah lived in Morasheth, the small town, among commoners and farmers. And he was among the poor people. So Micah could see and understand and experience firsthand what was happening in the land in particular. And so what he saw just really shook him. Now Micah, unlike the other prophets that we've studied, did most of his ministry in the southern kingdom of Judah. That's why you're going to notice something fascinating in Micah's book that's different than the other books is he mentions Jerusalem and he mentions Judah, where the other books mentions, mentions Israel and Samaria. Samaria was the, the holy city of the northern kingdom and Jerusalem was a holy city of the southern kingdom. And so he mentions Judah's and Israel's sins in the book. Now, the sins that he lists are vast. 
So I'm just going to run through a list of things that you're going to see in the book as you open the book. You can see in chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, that they were greedy and covetous, so much so that they devised a way to steal from one another. So you can imagine living in a land where people were finding and just thinking of ways to trick one another out of their properties. In chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, they were robbing one another in business dealings. They had you know, faulty waiting systems. They were just ripping people off left and right. They were full of violence and deceit is what the text tells us. In chapter 6, verse 16, there's this stunning kind of remark he makes that they had adopted the ways of Omri and King Ahab. Now, if you know much about Israel's history, you know that these were two of the most wicked kings in Israel's history. And what Micah is basically saying is, is listen, you guys, the nation has adopted the ways of two of its two most wicked kings. And these wicked kings, so you can know, them and their wives led the entire nation into idol worship, sacrificing children and all sorts of immorality. You'll remember King Ahab from his conflict with, with Elijah, the prophet. First Corinthians, First Kings 18 the, the fight at Mount Carmel, right? It's because all these 400 prophets of Baal show up. Well, all those are, are followers of King Ahab, right? So you can imagine when Micah says, hey, y'all are following after the, the most wicked kings of your time. You can imagine the impact that would have. But it wasn't just the people. The biggest issue was their leaders. And this is where it gets really challenging for us who are leading people at any level <clears throat> Both political and religious leaders, he says, were corrupt. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, he says that the political leaders hated good and loved evil. They were tearing the skin off of their people. I don't know, there's some debate on if this was figurative or literal. Right? They were literally dragging people off and harming them. They were breaking their bones. They, their leaders treated the commoner with injustice. You can imagine me and Micah living in a small town among the farmers and the commoners and the, the, the poor people and watching this stuff literally take place. What was good was seen as evil and what was evil was seen as good. It reminds you of a lot about what the book of Romans says about how when evil hits and sin begins to take root in the heart, this is what happens, right? And chapter 2, verse 6 tells us something interesting, that they only wanted certain types of preachers. You know, tell us certain things. Don't don't preach certain things. Tell us other things. And chapter 3, verse 5 says that their religious leaders literally were just tickling their ears and obliged them. Their pastors allowed sin to go unchecked and told them things they wanted to hear. In chapter 3, verses 9 through 11, we read of all the corruption kind of coming together. They detested justice. They took bribes. I mean, listen to this. Their priests taught for a price. Prophets prophesied for money. And yet all the while thinking that God was with them. God was blessing their endeavors. Right? I mean, um, we don't have to take much time to go into the charlatans of our day to see this. And chapter 7, verses 2 through 6 summarized how bad things had really gotten. The godly were gone. Mistrust had overwhelmed them. Literally, you, you could not go anywhere in society without mistrusting somebody. Families were fighting against one another. They were at war with each other. Sons fighting against their dads and mom and daughters fighting against their moms and on and on and on the list goes. Right? And Micah says it's for these sins that the Lord was coming after them. So you got a you got a society that's full of decadence, full of mistrust, full of deceit, full of violence, full of immorality. It's just packed with it. And it's for this that Micah says, The Lord the Lord's coming to deal with us. He's coming. 
And what you're going to find in the book of Micah is there's virtually a consequence on every in every chapter. In every chapter, Micah brings up something that the Lord is going to be dealing with these people. So since we're not going to cover every chapter, excuse me, let me just give you a few that seem to indicate the sins of the people even further. In chapter 5, verses 10 through 14, notice all the things the Lord said he would cut off. Their horses, their chariots, their cities, their strongholds, their sorceries, their carved images, the work of their hands and, the, and their Asherah images, which were just idolatrous images that they posted. All of these things were things that they put their trust in. These were things they believed would bring them satisfaction and joy in this world. Their military strength, their metro cities that were enormous and extravagant, their idolatry and their towns built up for their idolatry, the temples that were being used for their idolatry. All these things they trusted in, the Lord says, I'm going to cut them off and I'm going to destroy them. In chapter 6, verses 13 through 15, the Lord promised to make them desolate because of their sins. They would be hungry. They would sow and not reap. They would try to store things up, but, but all their stuff would be destroyed. They would have vines, but no wine. All of their abundances would be absolutely destroyed and depleted. They wouldn't be able to make a profit if they even tried and worked diligently for it. God says, I'm cutting you off. It's all gone. In chapter 1, verse 6, and chapter 3, verse 12, both of their worship centers, Samaria and Jerusalem, he says, are going to be turned to a heap. I mean, these were places that were intended to be centered on the worship of the one true God. Those things had become hypocritical ritual centers as a part of their, their idolatry. It was just one other addition to their, to their sins. These people believed that if they just kept offering sacrifices to God and doing their religious duty. They could go about their lives doing all the evil things that they're doing and God would still be happy with them. But God says, you know what? I'm going to flip every stone over of your phony little temple. Now these passages <clears throat> reveal something to us about the time and the people in Micah's time. And it's something we really have got to just pick our ears up and pay attention to. In Micah's time, the people had become remarkably prosperous. They built wonderfully fortified cities. I mean, you would go up to a city and think, there's no way we can destroy that. They had a formidable military that could destroy anybody. They had, they had beautiful temples. They had, they had full storehouses. I mean, their 401k plans were packed. And yet... They've become idolatrous, greedy, unjust, and merciless. The wealthy mistreated the poor. Their rulers ran roughshod over the innocent. They worshipped idols made with their own hands. All the while adding sacrifices to God to the religious system, hoping to appease God that God would not somehow notice their sin. And you'll notice... All they trusted in, their money, their cities, their false worship, would be destroyed. You know, I was trying to think about this in my own, in our own world. Uh, you know, and again, it's, it's hard to pick it out, but imagine for me for a moment that, that the Lord prophesies that, I don't know, pick a nation. A foreign nation is going to come and take over America. So here's the question that you have to ask yourself. And they're saying, 
All that you trust in is going to be gone. What would it be in your life that would be taken? This means that all the 401k planning you've had, it's, it's gone. The, the foreign army says, oh, that's good money, thank you. And they take it, and it's them, it's theirs. All the food you've stored up for your prepping day, it's all gone. Just do the math on this in your soul and begin to realize what God is basically doing is stripping them completely bare of everything that they trusted in. I mean, think about this. God's people had prospered by the hand and promise of God. That God delivered them out of Egypt, dropped them in the promised land, and told them things are going to get really good. You're going to prosper. And yet... They forgot their God and did not worship Him as the one true God. They exchanged their love for God and their love for one another in exchange for their love for money, possessions, and comfort. And God wouldn't let Him get away with it. Now, can, can you not see a bunch of lessons in this? I mean, I mean there's, a, there's a bunch, right? So let me just pick out two that for us, I think for us, would be the best for us. And there could be more, and you know, uh, some others may say it differently, but I, but I think one lesson we've got to learn is just, listen, this is, a, this is the word of the Lord that says, God will discipline those whom he loves. The discipline of the Lord is not necessarily a bad thing if your heart is toward the Lord, <laughs> right? It's not a bad thing. Israel and God's children in the church are those whom God loves, and if indeed it's needed, he will discipline us to turn us back to him. The whole purpose of God ripping away everything from the nation of Israel was to get them to pick their head up and remember this is their God. He's their king. He's their father. Right? The destruction that came in 722 B.C., which ironically, Micah dies around 700 B.C., so he lived 20 years after this. And then later on in 586 B.C., which Micah actually is the first prophet that we've read to prophesy about the Babylonians coming, and to the southern kingdom was the discipline and an act of the Lord. God fulfilled what he promised to through the prophets and to his people. And sometimes, listen, when we sin against God, God will discipline us. We, we must understand that. We have a lot, listen, it, it's one thing. When you live in the age of grace like we live in, the tendency is to think and to presume upon the grace of God. To think, well, God, we could just do, get away with it. We'll, we'll act now, repent later. God's good. He's going to be kind. And yet this is a remarkable thing to step back and evaluate. You know, a financial hardship could happen, and God's using that for the purpose of shaking your boots a little bit to making you remember your pocketbook is not what you're trusting in. You can get a health diagnosis that you never saw coming just to remind you that your physical health is not what you have, you can trust in. Uh, jokingly enough for me, I have two repaired Achilles. They both blew out five years apart. And in both moments, I was physically at the strongest part of my life that I'd ever been. And then suddenly my Achilles blows out. I'm laying on the ground, and the only thing I can do is look up and think, oh, I'm not so strong after all. It's just a reminder, you're not who you think you are, bud. See? A severe challenge can come from God that God ordains to help us come to our spiritual senses. And many times, listen, many times, God's discipline comes after the things that we're trusting in that's not Him. 
And listen, it's loving of God to do this. It's right of God. So we've got to ask ourselves some questions. Where are we trusting in something other than God? Right? Where, where are we relying in something other than God? Listen, we watch it through 2020. It was our politics. It was our freedoms. You can name the issue that we're trusting in, that we're, you know, we're clinging on to, right? And you can gauge this and find it by just looking into your heart where you see anger, impatience, fear, worry. Those things seem to be indicators that you're clinging to something that may cause you to trust something other than God. It would do well for us to just examine that, right? There's a second lesson, I think, in this that I think it, it's something that we should learn. I think it's important for us right now where we are in a church, as a church. Because in our nation, in our, in our world, and in the church in our nation, in particular in the Western world, you see this a lot. We were talking about this a lot on our trip. Um, there's a thought that basically says this. If you're growing, if you're successful, if you're prosperous, if you're influential, God is certainly blessing you, and those are all signs that you're healthy and you're doing good. Here's a question. If we just looked at the exterior of Israel and Judah, at their big cities, their full storehouses, their gold, their military might, all the things, what we would certainly say they've been blessed by God. We'd probably even think, well, they're doing really good. I mean, this, I mean look at this place. Look how cool this is. This is awesome. What a great place to visit, right? And yet we'd miss something. We'd miss it. See, prosperity, and this is for those of you who might lean into the prosperity gospel, the prosperity gospel could be a false cover for hypocrisy and evil. It's just a veneer that just puts up, there's nothing to see here. We're doing fine. Influence could just simply be a mask for manipulation and greed. Right? You're gaining influence because in the heart, you've suddenly, you're working angles all the time. See? And we, mu we just must be cautious, and I think as a church, for us right now in particular, we must be cautious about just determining God's blessing based on material and external things like a bigger building, money in the bank, um, more people. And we must set our eyes and have our attention on what are God's standards for God's blessing? What is God after? What does God want? Right? Which, beautifully enough, that's our next point. Because Micah's going to address that. And it's the next point of do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. And you could basically, <clears throat> this comes from the most famous verse in the book. How many of you remember the song, you know, he has told you, oh man. Everybody know the song? Nobody but me? Okay, great, okay. A few people? Right, great. Uh, this week, yeah, exactly. Say, this week, Perry, Perry's asked me about my sermon this week, and I, I, I was trying to quote the verse, and I just started singing the song, you know. He has told you, oh man, what is good? What is good? Okay, anyway, so here's what the verse says, all right? He's told you, oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Now this verse is actually coming from a section when the people, Micah is, is saying, the people might ask, what, what do we need to do then? If God is coming, what do we need to do? And they basically ask, do we make more sacrifices? Matter of fact, one part of it is they, they say, do we offer our children for sacrifice? 
Which think I mean, just think about that for a moment. You think how assuming this is, God must be pleased if we offer our babies. That's how far they'd come. Do we do some religious ceremony that God would be happy with? And Micah's response is, hey, listen, folks, God's already told you what he wants you to do. Do justice, love mercy or kindness, and walk humbly with your God. Now, now each of these revealed something about the people's sins they were dealing with in this time. God told them to do justice because they lacked justice. There was no justice specifically for the common folks of the land. The wealthy ran over the top of the poor. They dragged them to court. They stole from them. They took their land by force. When the commoner tried to address it with the rulers of their land, the wicked rulers sided with the wealthy. It was so despised, he said. It was so so bad that they actually despised justice, is what Micah says. He tells them to love mercy or kindness, which goes hand in hand with justice. There was no compassion in their eyes for the hurting or the innocent. Rather, that was a moment for them to take advantage of somebody. Oh, they're hurting? Great, we can, we can get something out of them. Instead of having a heart for the, wick, the, the weakest among them, they did everything they could to rob them blind, and it all stemmed from not walking humbly with their God. Now, that's the root issue. And you have to ask, how could these people, a nation built by God, prospered by God, and blessed by God, become so decadent and impersonal? I mean, think about this. These are people that literally would leave on the outside of their fields gleanings that the poor people could take, and now they're robbing those people blind. How could they ever do that? What happened to these people? It's become it's because their affluence and comfort became their God. They were arrogant because of their wealth and prosperity, and they'd forgotten their dependence on the God who saved them. See, now we could, the the first assumption is, well, uh, that means affluence is bad, and that means wealth is bad, that means prosperity is bad. That's not what Mike is saying. What Mike is saying is, those things are a radical temptation for you to forget God, so in your affluence, don't forget God. Have a heart that is toward God and toward the things of God's people. And what you're going to notice in Micah's instruction in Micah 6.8 is this isn't a rote religious script. See, uh, what we've done in our world with it, especially in the social justice world we live in, we've said, okay, Micah says we've got to do justice. That means we've got to do social justice so we go after all the things that the world says are bad things. The challenge with that is there are some things the world says are bad that God doesn't declare as bad. We're not after social justice. We're after biblical justice. What does God say we should act? And how should we act? And how should we respond? Right? And this is not, but this is not like someone is, these are things we have to do to be pleasing to God. No, what you're going to notice about this, this is God saying, I want your whole heart. I want everything about you. This is not about sacrifice. It's about loving God. It's not about religious ceremony. It's about having compassion on other people that's flowing out of a heart that loves God. See, David Pryor wrote it best when he said this, Repentance and faith are the necessary prerequisites for living with justice, mercy, and humility before God as our priorities. 
Micah's contemporaries were living evidence of what happens to people who decide to dispense with God to walk in pride without God. Micah's threefold requirement cannot, therefore, be conveniently dissected, packaged, and labeled. The three qualities hold together. It it is only by applying ourselves to the third, to walk humbly with your God, that we can begin to practice the first two, to do justice and to love kindness. That is also what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Justice and kindness are, in fact, essential qualities in the nature of God himself. They do not come down from heaven wrapped in parcels or wrapped in Christmas gifts. They're expressed in and through people who walk humbly with their God. See, this is a this is a call of God to say, listen, my people, I don't want your sacrifices. I don't want just your rote obedience. I want your heart. I don't want your duties. I want you to be devoted to me. That's something we have to see in this. This isn't a rote just go do these things. Matter of fact, you're going to find the 1920s was one of the greatest times of social justice in the history of the world. And what was birthed out of the 1920s was Protestant liberalism. Because people left the gospel in exchange for social justice to do justice and miss completely the mark that Biblical justice is about God captivating the heart and the heart then moves in compassion because God has moved in the heart. Not just because we're told to do something. The second thing I want you to notice in this, and I think we have to see it, is just how easy it is for, to forget God amidst prosperity and affluence. I mean, twice in the book, Micah does something fascinating. and It's their gospel moment. He reminds them, that God is the one who brought them out of the land of Egypt. You're going to see this throughout the Old Testament. I am the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You have to ask, why is God saying that over and over again? Because that's their gospel moment. That's their, that's their Calvary moment, if you will. It's the moment when God is saying to them, don't forget who delivered you. See, in their prosperity, they had to be reminded of the God who saved them. They were not to forget their God. And when they forgot their God, what they do? They elevated themselves. Friends, this is always true. You, we forget God, we become self-reliant, self-sufficient, and entitled. It's a great lesson for us living in a very affluent land and God being very kind to us as a church right now. Because listen, if you're a child of God, a believer in Christ is your Savior and King, don't ever forget Who delivered you from your sin and the hell that you deserve? Don't ever forget that. Last week as we were doing ordinations, we sat down with these brothers and we could instantly feel they they felt intimidated. I'm a white pastor coming in, an American pastor, seemingly successful. They watch us on YouTube religiously. These people in the Philippines, many in Manila, get up at 2.30, whatever time in the morning, to watch us online live. I mean, do the math on that one, right? And they've seen me on the screen. And as I'm in front of them, the first thing I reminded them was, brothers, listen, at the foot of the cross, we are equal. There is nothing about me that would make me superior to you. We are children of God. We've been bought with the same blood. We have the same red blood dripping through our veins and our Savior has saved all of us. 
So we're here as brothers to serve you. Listen, brothers and sisters, no matter, no matter what success God gives you, no matter what money you get in your bank, no matter how much people applaud you in your job, never forget, never forget of the God who saved you from the hell that you deserved and the sin that you did. Never forget that. And as a church, listen, no matter how large our church becomes or how much money is in our bank account, how many followers are on social media or how many viewers we get on YouTube, we must never forget the God who saved us from the hell that we we deserve and the sin that we did. Never forget that. We must never forget that. And we must never stop giving him thanks for what God has done. Not to us, O oh Lord, but to your great name be all the glory. See, what that will cause us to do, it will just cause us to walk humbly with our God. And in turn, help us to love God and love others in a way that honors God. And it will then act upon appropriate biblical justice and appropriate moments of kindness. Now let's finish with then the kingdom of Christ, and the God of mercy. And this is where it gets a little disjointed. You can feel it in the book. You'll feel it in the sermon a little bit. Micah chapter 1 through 3, Micah lays out God's concerns for the people. In chapter 6 and into chapter 7, he then calls on something funny. He calls on the heavens and the earth to take notice. It's, It's like Micah stands up in front of the trees and says, Hey, trees, pay attention to this. I'm bringing a testimony against God's, against the people. It's obvious that their sin has found them out and God was on the move to exile them from their homes. But in chapters 4 and 5, it's like Micah just pushes the pause button. It really is like a moment that you suddenly... Go back to that, first, that screen before that, if you don't mind. Uh, there, uh, go back to the, type, the, uh, the, out, the, the number. Number 3. Right there. Perfect. It's like, it's like you're, you'll notice in the middle of the book... Micah's rattling off problems, and all of a sudden, he gets to this thing. It shall come to pass in the last days. Now, there's some that would think, at that moment, they are being ransacked. In the latter days, something, it's like Micah just pushes the pause and says, I'm looking way out on the horizon of something great to come. Right? Now, David Pryor, writing about the latter days, wrote this. Generally, in the Old Testament... The phrase seems to denote an unspecified future time, a prolonged period rather than an actual date. It's important for those of us who have certain views of eschatology. When situations that have remained in place for years, if not for centuries, will be reversed or replaced. So right in the middle of a book, a book on disaster, a book on sin... On both sides, you have between four and five, you got this disaster coming and all the sin happening. Right in the middle, Micah picks his head up and looks ahead to the latter days, to the future. It's like he just picks his head out of the fog of all the stuff and he sees something. And notice what he sees. He sees the mountain of the Lord being elevated to the highest mountain. And the people from every nation come into it. And on that day, it says, the Lord will bring the lame and the afflicted and will save a remnant and will make them a strong nation. Now just think about the impact of the people for the people at this time who the afflicted and the lame were being harmed. He said, no, on that day, when the mount, when the, the mountain of the Lord has taken over everything, God's bringing in all of his people and he's bringing in a remnant of his people. And notice what he says next in chapter five. And out of Bethlehem, a ruler 
of Israel will come. Whose coming forth is from ancient days, and he will shepherd his people, and he will be the peace of his people. Now this is absolutely stunning. Because what is Micah seeing here? Now for a moment, again, we got to go back. How would the original readers have seen this? They would have looked at this with, wait, there's hope on the horizon. One day God will establish a kingdom led by a shepherd king who's going to come from this small town of Bethlehem. And God's kingdom will be like a new Jerusalem because we're watching our Jerusalem burn. And this king will come to be their peace. See, this is the promise of the coming Messiah, the shepherd king that's to come. It's a promise that God would save a remnant of his people, a small group of people who look to this king, look to this shepherd king, and God would build a nation with that people. Now, then let's step back and go, okay, what do we see then from 2,100 years of biblical history and of our own history and reading the Bible story, what do we see? We see this as the kingdom of Christ that was established when Jesus came. This is stunning. The great shepherd born in Bethlehem being our peace before God. Now listen, there are too many references for me to respond to this. Let me just give you a few. Speaking of the stone mountain that would grow and cover and get large to cover all the earth, listen to what Daniel wrote in Daniel 2. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and will bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Do you see this mountain rising up above all the other mountains? Just as you saw the stone was cut from the mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. And speaking of Jesus being our peace, Paul wrote in Romans 5 that Jesus Christ brings peace with God for us in Ephesians 2, he himself is our peace, a direct quote from Micah chapter 5. And he's speaking of a remnant who would become a nation different than these people were. Jesus said himself in Matthew chapter 20, 21, speaking to the rebellious Jewish leaders, therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a people producing its fruits. The one who falls on this stone, and guess what that stone was? It was the cornerstone that shatters all the other empires of the world and grows into a large mountain, will be broken into pieces, and anyone who falls on it, it will crush him. See, when Micah envisioned in Micah 4 and 5, he is envisioning the establishment of the kingdom of Christ under the shepherd king, Jesus. You... We, we must see this. And what I want you to also know is it is in the direct center of the book of Micah. Meaning if we were to take the book of Micah out of our pages, it would be like the spine of the book. Meaning what's holding the book together is the vision that Micah has of the kingdom of Christ. God gave Micah a vision. Now just think about this. During a decadent, uncertain time, of a certain righteous kingdom being led by a certain righteous king whose reign will never end and whose kingdom will never be defeated. That is remarkable. That would be remarkable news 
If you're sitting there watching your city be destroyed, and it's remarkable news for us right now in 21st century America as we think things are destroying all around us. Oh, no, 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 no. There is a mountain that is rising, and it's the kingdom of Christ. Don't ever forget that. Now, that'll preach a little bit. right? That will preach. Now, see, it's at this point in the minor prophets and the others that you will notice that you can almost hear them pleading with the people of God to repent. But you don't see that in Micah. It's almost stunning. It's like Micah points out the vision, and Micah does something else. He knows that disaster's coming, quite frankly, probably has. He knows the inevitable is on their doorstep. And Micah responds personally. And, and quite honestly, I think Micah shows us how we should respond personally in times of hardship. Now again, picture this. Here's a man who's seen the sin of his people, the disaster to come. He's seen the picture of the coming kingdom led by a great shepherd. And disaster hits. All the beautiful buildings destroyed. All the storehouses ransacked. All the treasuries are looted. There's panic in the streets. What is his response to this? Well, notice chapter 7, verses 7 through 9. But as for me, you see his personal response? But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, my enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. Until he pleads my cause and executes judge, judgment for me, he will bring me out to the light and I shall look upon his vindication. See, Micah takes it all in, what he's seen, what he's written, and what does Micah do? He puts his trust in the God of his salvation. He puts his confidence in the coming stone kingdom led by the shepherd king. He waits for the Lord, knowing that God will hear his cry. Knowing that. Now when I read this, I, I always ask questions about men like this. Why? Why would you do this? Why would you not panic with everybody else? Why do you stand firm differently? I do this when I read biographies. I'm like, why does a guy do that when others are doing this? Why did Micah do this? And you should be asking the same question. I mean, when you look at Micah's response, was this the way you responded in 2020? Was this the way you responded when your bank account is ransacked? Was this the way you responded when the hand of the Lord was heavy? Why does Micah respond like this? Well, that's the beauty of the last verses of the book. Because Micah knows the character of his God. And my question to you is, do you know the character of your God? Notice what Micah wrote. We read this earlier, but it bears repeating again. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever. Meaning, this struggles, it's just a season. God will get me through. Because he delights in steadfast love. He will love me forever because he is my God. He will again have compassion on us 
He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. Meaning God puts them down where he never sees them and looks upon them ever again. You will show faithfulness to Jacob, our people, our leader, our father. And you'll show love to Abraham just as you promised, just as you sworn from the days of old. See, what Micah knows is this. God will forgive the sins of his people who trust in him and he does not remain angry with us forever. So let's, in that moment of discipline, you can know this as your heart turns to God and looks to God. You have a God. You have a God who forgives you. You have a God that has said because of Christ, if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. You have a God who delights in showing you steadfast love and he will have compassion on you and he will remember his promises from of old and he will fulfill every last one of them. Micah is convinced of the character of God. See, in the midst of this chaotic world, are you convinced? I mean, are you convinced that... The Lord is building His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. If you aren't convinced of that, I just want to invite you to get out more. Go visit what's happening in Africa, in Latin America, in the Philippines. And go see that the gospel is running over the top of places like you could never believe. Latin America right now is going through their very first great reformation where people are coming out of the Catholic church in the droves. It's as if Martin Luther stamped the 95 Thesis on the door about 10 years ago. And it is running crazy. Just get out more. The kingdom of Christ. Do, do you see the character of God to do these things? See, I do believe this is one reason why God takes us through hard times. It's to shake us. It's to reveal what do we really trust in. Again, evaluate your fear, anxiety, anger, over the things in your life for the last several years, do you see God just testing the things you trust in? Do you see God reminding you once again of his character toward you? See, the book of Micah is given to us to show us how to live in a sin-stained world with our eyes up and out, not down and in. By trusting in the character of God, by loving Him and serving others. And it's given to us to remind us that God can and should be trusted no matter what life may bring our way. That's why we have this book. So don't miss this story. Let's pray. Let's stand together. We're going to close our time in prayer. We've run over. I didn't even realize that. <laughs> Long preacher. Father, we, we don't want to rush out by, without responding to you. But church, in your heart right now, where there's areas where you see that you have trusted in yourself, you've trusted in your possessions, you've trusted in your influence, trusted in what others have said about you, you've trusted in your comfort, rather than trusting in the living God, would you right now just take a moment to confess that to the Lord?
where you see that you have acted entitled, you've acted without compassion toward others, without mercy, without grace. Would you confess that to the Lord? And just for a moment, would you just remind yourself that you have been forgiven of the sin that should have sent you to hell by the risen Christ. (laughs) And thank God for saving you. And thank God for these blessings that he's given you in your life. And ask him to never let you take them for granted again. So Father, we just bow our hearts. We, we want to be a people that is wholeheartedly committed to the things of God and the grace of God and the gospel of God. And yet, Lord, we, we many times take advantage of what we have. We take for granted what we have. And at times we, we treat others poorly, without mercy, without compassion, without love. And we recognize that you, you're pointing your finger at us and we, we want to respond with joyful repentance, knowing that you are a God who forgives all of our iniquity. And we thank you. Father, would you bless us as we go and encourage us as we go? Would you strengthen us as we go? Help us to represent you well in this world for the glory of Christ, not the glory of us. For the good of your everlasting work, not for the good of our temporal work. and for the good of people all around, so that Christ and his gospel would be advanced. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com. Thank you.